ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. I'm Selena Green and this is the South Australian Country Hour. Right now, there are tens of thousands of tonnes of new season barley heading to China from South Australian growers. And in just a sec, you're going to hear from Viterra about just how much is being shipped out. And also some very welcome news for farmers around the gap in the South Australian dog fence that work to close that up is about to start soon. Graziers are frustrated and understandably um, they've been sort of told it's going to happen. There's been delay after delay uh, and I guess... For them, um, what I'm told is that there's piles of build, fence building material sitting on the ground. Now, farmers see fence building material and they've just turned it into a fence, you know. Um, and what's frustrating for them is uh, the bureaucracy and red tape and green tape they're going through to actually get this done. Imagine it would be very frustrating seeing those materials just sitting there, wanting them to be put to use. So an update on that shortly as well. That is all to come. Part of this... Plus, a bit of talk about industry levies today. Whatever industry you're in, chances are that you pay some. So do you think you're getting bang for your buck? Is there enough transparency around how your levies are being invested? Happy to get your feedback today. My talkback number is 1300 991 or you can send me a text on 0467 922 well, first up today, the first load of new season grain is making its way to China after leaving Port Lincoln this week. It's 66,000 tonnes worth of new season barley. It's heading to China since the removal of Australian barley tariffs earlier this year. By Terra's General Manager of Supply Chain, Derek, Derek Rob John, says it was exciting to see China back in the fold for the market. Uh, which is which is really is fantastic news for for uh, South Australian growers and uh, the supply chain transport partners that we use within within the state. So certainly after the uh, uh, the ban that's been lifted back in August, this is our first new crop vessel, but we've also had some, uh, multiple malt vessels um, of old crop going out uh, since uh, since August, actually. So I was going to ask, has there been uh, old crop that, you, that you've sent to China since the, the tariffs have been lifted? Yeah, we've had uh, multiple, um, both out of Adelaide ports, uh, Lincoln um, as well, so um, old crop malt uh, going through. So uh, China's uh, certainly uh, sought after, sorry, certainly seeks South Australian grain um, and uh, with over 90% of the barley varieties, certainly as a preference for, for Chinese um, uh, end users, both maltsters and, and feedlots. It's a, uh, a, yeah, a great result to see China back in the, in the fold again for, for uh, South Australian grain. Do you expect a lot of South Australian grain to be uh, going to China, a lot of South Australian barley? Yeah, so for harvest uh, point of view, um, actually every vessel that uh, we've got across multiple buyers is actually, uh, for, for, uh, for barley, is actually destined to China in the short term. So with uh, its close proximity to Australia, um, obviously has a, a great freight advantage, which the, the market capitalise on as well as um, then has positive returns back to the grower as well. So, yeah, we're expecting certainly a large, uh, large proportion of South Australian barley crop to be um, which we exported to go to China this year. What did it mean not having that as an option to, to head to, to China? Um, well, the, the, the market really um, filled in the gaps um, very well, but obviously there's a, there's a freight implication from a global freight point of view of not having China demanding that grain. So there was um, certainly a, a, 
an impact in terms of uh, return on pricing. Um, the market obviously fluctuates up and down based on demand, but it really is a uh, it was a requirement for the, the, the barley markets to find alternative homes, which has been um, reasonably successful. But uh, the benefit really is for China is that it is close to uh, close to Australia. They uh, they really do like the, the, the sound quality of, of barley that we produce um, within Australia and certainly within South Australia, and uh, it really does underpin and support growers that um, grow malt varieties and. Over ninety percent of malt, uh, over ninety percent of barley that's grown in South Australia is of of a malting variety, um, which is a positive result if they can get malt, um, or it is very sought after from a feed perspective as well. What's quality been like coming in, uh, Derek, for uh, for for barley in South Australia? Yeah, it's been it's been really um, really solid actually. So growers uh, sentiment has been uh, very positive. The quality uh, in comparison to last year is is certainly up. It's nice. Uh, Clear uh, uh, grain, um, and um, yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're certainly hearing positive results around yields being on average or just above average, depending on which area you're in. Uh, Derek, you're on the uh, peninsula um, this week. What are you? Uh, what are you taking a look at? Uh, so yeah, um, dropping into some of our sites um, with harvest uh, on truly underway and making my way up to Thevenard, where we've actually got a, uh, a vessel coming in for uh, which is wheat uh, with destined to Mauritius. So we've actually got a, a buyer over. Going to uh, show them around the facilities and, and, and the sites, and um, but the main thing is getting out and actually talking with our uh, staff on the ground. And um, we've actually had um, over fifteen hundred uh, casual positions for the for the harvest to facilitate getting the crop in as quickly and efficiently as possible. So it's important to get out and, and support and uh, and recognise the hard work that um, the Viterra staff do to facilitate that harvest period. Just back onto the the barley with China, Derek. Do you think that with China now back into the the market with with Australian barley and, and South Australian barley, do you think here in SA you'll see a lot more growers next year putting in more barley? Um, I'm probably not quite close enough to sort of working through from a from a grower perspective, but my expectations with pricing sort of um, appears to be. I, I think it it, it, it exists in the existing rotations that the, that the growers do, so it'll depend on the regions. But it, it certainly is strongly supported with. Uh, the price, and as I um, stated previously, the, the real benefit for China is the, the, the close proximity to Australia compared to other traditional barley homes such as um, the Middle East, which is certainly a longer sailing time, which then impacts the price being offered. From a South Australian perspective, not only um, linked to barley, but um, we've got very strong demand um, for the 23-24 crop with over 6.3 million tonnes booked on our stem and with over 18 exporters and, and 45 um, domestic users and, and, and buyers. So certainly provides growers a lot of options uh, and marketing opportunities within the network. With harvest happening so quickly for a lot of people, Derek, and a lot of um, you know grain coming in quite quickly and coming off quite quickly, does a lot get held on, on site or, or Port Lincoln or, or Thevenard or, or at some of the, the country sites before it can be ex- exported? Uh, so we, we're in the, in the process of accumulating grain um, whilst the, the, the crop is coming through. So uh, we're accumulating um, both off, off the header from the grower as well as um, site to site systematically as we're going through. So we've got a very strong f- uh, forward sold shipping stem with uh, all of our ports actually uh, having harvest-based vessels, both wheat, barley and uh, our pulses and, and lentils uh, and canola um, during the harvest period. So... Uh, it's certainly been a, a very busy period for the harvest, which just really just translated through from uh, the previous uh, record uh, export year that we had in uh, 22-23. As Viterra's General Manager of the Supply Chain, Eric Robjohns there speaking with Brooke Nindorf. It's 12 minutes past 12.
Well, plans to fast-track closing a 32-kilometre gap in the dog fence along the New South Wales-South Australian border, well, they've been commenced as an important move in taking action against the threat of wild dogs. The member for Barwon, Roy Butler, says this week's statement from the New South Wales Minister for Agriculture, Tara Moriarty, that boots will be on the ground by the end of the year. Well, he says it's a step in the right direction. The Minister's taken this particularly seriously. We've uh, been very strong um, in our discussions with her. We know that people who live uh, along the properties, especially those properties along where the gap in the 32-kilometre gap is, are incredibly frustrated. They want to see action. The, the last Parliament is when this should have been completed. It wasn't completed, so I applaud the Minister for jumping in and actually taking action to expedite anything that needs to happen and get on with building the fence. Graziers are frustrated, and understandably, um, they've been sort of told it's going to happen. There's been delay after delay, uh, and I guess... For them, um, what I'm told is that there's piles of fence-building material sitting on the ground. Now, farmers see fence-building material and they've just turned it into a fence, you know. Um, And what's frustrating for them is uh, the bureaucracy and red tape and green tape they're going through to actually get this done. So I've really urged the Minister to push that stuff through ASAP. Anything that needs to be done, get it done, get shovels in the ground, get the fence built. If a farmer sees a dog at the moment, rightfully, they'd be saying, well, that gap in the fence is contributing to the dog problem. Um, So I think that there's frustration both ways, but the sooner we can get the fence up, the sooner we can stop that, we can end the frustration for farmers and they can get on with farming, controlling pests on their own property and not having to worry about another access source for animals to enter their property, especially pest dogs. And especially going into a dry time like we are, you know, stock prices are down. Uh, that puts pressure on farmers. So the idea that your, your stock, which is you know your asset, is going to potentially be killed or injured by wild dogs at a time when you're not even getting as much money for them as you normally would just makes it all that much harder for farmers. Member for Bowen, Roy Butler. Managing Director of Mutaru Pastoral Company, James Morgan, says despite the promise of a fast-track fix, he isn't convinced the 32-kilometre gap is going to be finished anytime soon. He says the whole process has been long-winded. Right from the outset with the new South Australian sections that were being done and, uh, and then the agreement from New South Wales to fill that gap, which put the fence on much better terrain, particularly the South Australian section. It took it out of some very uh, awkward and difficult to maintain country, which we, we volunteered to accept that the fence would be shifted southwards, uh, the 32 kilometres, to get out of all that uh, difficult area and hopefully, you know, reduce the dog problems in years to come. And, of course, having done all that and then met with the the, the fence rebuild committee from New South Wales and, and assuming that it would be done, but we were alerted quite early that there was going to be a lot of homework done on investigating uh, Indigenous issues and also uh, na- um, native animals, which was difficult at best and... and time-consuming and I think it's turned out to be very expensive given that it was an old vermin fence anyway and it is after all only a fence so the disturbance once the fence is built is minimal and certainly with the South Australian fence we did all the right things with that and got on with it and built it so the South Australian Terza credit was built quickly and efficiently and we now have a, a much better dog situation so yeah we we feel that this is essential to complete that network and the other thing is then we can um, stop maintaining the extra bit that goes around the top of, uh, of Mulliungri that, that would no longer need to be maintained. And I guess it can be it's probably hard to put a number on it, but how much stock loss have you seen to wild dogs? Oh, over the years, we've had some excessive losses, but having that hole still there is not great. And we would, you know, we think it needs to be closed up because that just allows the leakage both ways. And I can't put a number on that, but it's always an issue. And particularly when drought, dry spells start, the dogs start moving south and west. And, and they will transit between that area and, 
that will mean that they are, you know, they're hugging the fence all the time, particularly the new fences. So I, I just think it's a, as I said, it's an important issue and it, it never goes away. So it needs to be completed. What have you heard from those supposedly heading the project and supposed to be getting this extension done? There's been a little bit of activity lately. Uh, I know there's a large party of people um, doing extensive search on the fence at the moment for artefacts, which is, you know, be that as it may, but that's awful lot of taxpayers' money that could have been used for building the fence and instead of uh, putting it towards that and, you know, had they made the sensible and practical decisions right from the outset. Uh, that's all we all we know is that we, we might be a little bit closer, but, but gee whiz, it's been a long time. It's, it's some years when we had the first discussions about this. In fact, that new fence in South Australia has been up for a couple of years now. Long overdue. Do you have any confidence that it is going to get underway sometime soon? I've got to say I'm not that confident uh, that it'll happen quickly because it's been delayed extensively already uh, through sort of bureaucratic bungling. You know, this sort of stuff is just holding up production and people's work programs. They're overdone and it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be still a while before we see it happening, which is such a shame. I guess it's something that can impact such a widespread amount of people and, as you say, productivity. What do you think it will be that's actually going to get, you know, get this project underway? Is there some sort of tipping point, do you think? I think that the, the pressure is on now because the, the season's drying off a bit and the dogs will be on the move. But, but look, from a, it's really about a medium and long-term thing. I mean, the, the long-term is that dogs, dog fences are there to protect all sorts of animals right across the spectrum and people. And they're there for the original settlers put them there for a very good reason. So it needs to happen, and and I don't think any other option is sensible. No matter what what people's view on running livestock is, it needs to happen for all those reasons for the protection of people and animals. There's plenty of room outside the fence for dogs to run wild, and the numbers are very high historically, particularly with the water provided outside the fence by pastoralists. We would like to think that it's going to be sooner than later, but I. I, I worry about where that's headed. As a managing director of Mootaroo Pastoral Company, James Morgan, he was speaking there with Lily McEwer, and the New South Wales Minister for Agriculture has been contacted for comment. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, on Wednesday, the industry body that receives levies from growers across 37 plant-based crops, Hort Innovation, well, they released the results of an independent audit into performance over the last five years. And the audit found that Hort Innovation, which received $588 million in revenue between 2018 and 2022, well, found it needs to improve transparency and communication with its members about how it invests their money. Hort Innovation Chief Executive Brett Fifield told reporter Elsie Kennedy that that his organisation was working to address the issues raised in that report. The review released today has more than a dozen recommendations. We're mindful that the report and the, of the review does point to some areas of um, improvement and action, which we're very happy with, but we know there's more to be done. So in particular, one of the recommendations was that Hornet Innovation should publish an investment decision framework in order to let everybody know why you're investing in certain programs and projects. Why is it that you guys haven't published a decision framework so far? Hornet Innovation receives feedback via 37 industry advisory committees. Each of those represents different parts of or different commodities within horticulture. We take that advice and develop annual investment plans with 
those groups. We're confident that we are investing in the right areas. We're flexible. We're listening to industry. The recommendation around a decision tree, we take that on board and we'll be publishing one of those early in the new year. The consultant that completed the review found that there was some feedback from stakeholders suggesting there wasn't a lot of clarity over investment activities. What are you doing to improve the communication and the conversations that you're having with stakeholders? Part of the last 12 months has been around really focusing our communication with industry groups. So there's the 37 peak industry bodies and also their members and growers right across Australia. We've reallocated a significant amount of resource into a new team called Industry Services and Delivery, where we've doubled the number of team members servicing each of those industries. And so we're really focused on that engagement, opening up discussion early and actually building together in partnership with industry the priorities for Hort Innovation moving forward. One of the other recommendations was that you finalise the execution of memorandums of understanding that you've got with peak industry bodies and update the status of those MOUs on your website. Again, just letting everybody know where everything's up to. Why is it that you haven't done that so far? We have been doing that throughout the process. The the reset and refresh of our advisory mechanism has been a project that's been underway for 18 months. We expect next week that we will sign the final memorandum of understanding with the uh, one group that's outstanding, and then we'll be updating and publishing uh, on our website all the final documents. What is that one group that still has the outstanding MOU? Nursery. So where, where is that up to at this stage? We've agreed terms and we think suspect it will be signed next week. The other thing that was recommended in the review was that you put some processes in place in order to make sure that the investment of levy payer and government funding is efficient and that there aren't any duplications. You had about $154 million come in in revenue in 2021-22. Of that, you put out about $103 million in research and development. What are you planning to do to increase the efficiency of that spending? Part of the priority Hort Innovation moving forward is having larger programs of work rather than individual projects. So you're seeing a significant shift in our investment portfolio from single industry investments to tackling challenges that stretch beyond one individual sector. So bringing together tree crop sectors to focus on particular biosecurity challenges that they all face. So providing industry organisations to bring funds together or bring those dollars that they pay into levies into larger programs of work, and that increases the efficiency and the stretch of our R&D muscle across the sector. That was Hort Innovation's Chief Executive Brett Fifield, and he was speaking there to reporter Elsie Kennedy. 23 minutes past 12. Well, let's find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now. For that, we are joined, as always, by John Traeger. Afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Numbers increased again this week as agents offered 789 live weight and open oxen cattle. Quality remained mixed, however more grown cattle with finish were on offer. The usual bars are in attendance and operating as 310 steers, 282 heifers and 154 cows made up the bulk of the offering. Villa steers sold generally firm, making 155 to 227 cents, as Villa heifers in a better selection gained 10 to 15 cents to sell from 140 to 223 cents. Yearling steers eased 5 cents as they sold from 110 to 217 cents, as yearling heifers sold firm to make from 100 to 201 cents a kilo. 
Manufacturing steers sold firm as dairy types sold from 99 to 180, with beef types selling from 140 to 165 cents. Grown steers and heifers eased 5 to 10 cents as steers sold from 155 to 221 cents and heifers 130 to 209 cents. Cows of all weights and grades listed 5 to 10 cents a kilo as light dairy types sold from 60 to 127 cents and beef types 127 to 175 cents. Heavy dairy types sold from 107 to 169 cents with heavy beef types selling from 125 to 193 cents. Light bulls sold from 130 to 140 with heavy bulls selling from 147 to 205 cents a kilo. This is John Drake of the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. And now it's off to the Weather Bureau where Jenny Horvat is our forecaster again today. Hi, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. What's happening across the state right now? Oh, look, it's similar pattern to yesterday. So we've got the high-pressure system out sort of southwest of WA, maintaining that ridge of high pressure across the, the waters in the south of SA, so things pretty stable through there, a little bit of patchy cloud around and then we've got that trough and upper feature across the north and west of the state which is quite dynamic and it was quite a dynamic 24 hour period as well, just having a bit of a look at the lightning tracker there um, in the last 24 hours out about the north and west, so mostly sort of the northwest pastoral district and the west coast district, um, seeing over 90,000 lightning strikes um, saw a severe thunderstorm last night around the Gupapiti area. We saw a wind gust um, up to 119 kilometres per hour. That happened just after sort of 11pm last night. So quite active up through there and just having a look at some of the um, rain gauging since um, the 24 hours up until 9am this morning. Bearing in mind we don't have a very good network up in the in the northwest and western parts of the state. It's a bit patchy um, but we did see 19 millimetres recorded at Nullarbor. Kubo PD, 12 millimetres, Mobella, 8 millimetres, Tarkula, around 5 millimetres as well, Unadatta picking up around 3 millimetres. So I imagine there would have been some falls that would have been um, a little bit more than that in parts, I suspect. And things are likely to be active again this afternoon and we are still observing thunderstorms. They have continued um, from yesterday overnight and we're still going, having a bit of a look. We've seen a couple of lightning strikes in the Flinders, um, but most of the activity is still out in the more northwest pastoral districts, so west of Tarkula there and south of Marla, um, quite active at the moment. So thunderstorm team are monitoring those and I imagine we'll probably have severe thunderstorm warnings out again later today for parts of the the state. Probably the most likely areas where we are likely to see severe thunderstorms today are up in the far north, so north of um, Cooperpedi, maybe up around the Marla and Unadatta type area there. And with some of these um, stronger thunderstorms, we can probably expect to see some local heavy rainfall that can lead to some flash flooding. So some of those dirt outbreak roads likely to be impacted. Again, seeing some damaging to destructive wind gusts, not dissimilar to what we saw um, yesterday at Cooperpedi, and some gel 
hail is also not out of the, the question with some of those storms later today. Um, the pattern does stay relatively kind of stable, even though it is unsettled up in the north and west with that trough being quite slow moving. So as we head into Friday, we're still looking at quite a good chance to see some severe thunderstorms again in the northwest of the state, but thunderstorms more broadly across the northwest pastoral district and pushing up into the northeast pastoral district. So um, for today, if I draw a line for the storms, probably roughly north of Streaky Bay to Jamestown for tomorrow that risk sort of changes a little bit more to the northwest of Streaky Bay to Moomba and then the shower and thunderstorm risk on the Saturday still around maybe more um, northwest of Streaky Bay uh, to Yunta and then on Sunday probably north of around um, Sejuna to, to Broken Hill before we really start to see that storm activity contracting to the far northeast and west on Monday. Just having a look at some of the rainfall, less than a couple of millimetres about our southern coast, two to five millimetres about the northern agricultural area, up to five to 20 millimetres about the west coast and pastoral districts, 20 to 50 millimetres likely with thunderstorms and isolated falls in excess of, a hunt, um, of 50 millimetres possible. All right, thanks for that, Jenny Horvath, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Looking very quickly at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, upper and western, uh, the forecast is pretty much the same, sunny with south to southeasterly winds around 25 to 35 k's now with those daytime temperatures reaching into the low to mid 30s. It's just going on half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there, good afternoon. Shortly you're going to hear from a farmer who's, well, he's pretty happy to hear that a proposed bypass won't be cutting through his property after all. It's one of a handful of South Australian projects scrapped under the federal government's long-awaited review into infrastructure investments. And also in this next half an hour, more on a multi-million dollar deal by one South Australian company to send hay into China. Obviously we've got our national interest, China's got its national interest. But we want to see the trading relationship stabilise. And when it does stabilise, we see deals like this, $100 million worth of pay, uh, coming out of a South Australian company and exporting into China, uh, you know, some 200,000 tonnes of uh, Australian hay uh, over the next decade. And that's really good news for farmers. Yeah, it's a lot of hay and you'll hear a lot about that in a moment or two as well. But first, let's go to Matt Coleman because he's ready to give you a news update. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the Truro Bypass Project is among dozens losing federal funding. It's been grouped in the category of projects which did not demonstrate merit or did not fall in line with the government's investment priorities. The Israeli military is accusing Hamas of operating a command and control centre at Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. The IDF has released footage which it says shows Hamas weapons and equipment found inside the hospital. A senior Hamas official, Bassem Naim, has rejected Israel's claims as ridiculous and worthless. And Australia's unemployment rate has risen back to 3.7% for the month to October. That's despite the creation of an estimated 55,000 jobs last month. The Bureau of Statistics says the rebound in the participation rate back to 67% has caused the increase in unemployment. More news at 1 o'clock.
Thanks, Matt. And don't forget my talkback number this afternoon, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, and that text line is zero four six seven nine double two. Yes, it was supposed to be a 90-day review, but after about 200 days, the federal government has today handed down its review into infrastructure investments. The review has recommended providing more funding to some projects. Others will now have their funding reallocated. One of the projects that has been cut is the Truro Bypass, as you just heard in those headlines. The proposed alternate freight route was supposed to go through the property of Truro farmer Kingsley Munchenberg. And he told Eliza Berlage that today's announcement will be met with some mixed emotion from the rural community. It's an interesting one because when I found out and I rang my wife straight away, she was ecstatic. But I'm a bit more, uh, a bit hollow with the news just right now. Certainly it's good for my farming property to not be cut in half. But I also think of all the effort in preparation and, and getting us guys ready for plans of how we can go about with the highway right through the middle of our property. Um, Yeah, I'm a bit hollow, actually. Um, It might take me a few days to grasp the whole situation because I sort of look at the whole broad plan because we do need to get the trucks out of Truro. But, you know, the caravans and speedboats and, you know, the tourists, we actually, the town needs them in the town as well. And it, it might have set up more people houses and primary school kids and all that kind of thing, which Truro does need. So, yeah, I'm a bit hollow, to, to be honest. So the 90-day federal government review became almost a 200-day review, but for yourself and a lot of other farmers and the residents of Truro, you know, this is something that's been in, in the possibility for decades. And I understand that you have had uh, people out to your property, surveyors, um, ecologists, First Nations people coming out to do works over a period of months. Exactly. Yes, this has been ongoing for a long time. It has gone quiet just recent, like in the last few months. So it, it, I guess it's not a real surprise, but still, like when you finally find out, it's yeah, it, it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, all that work and all the community consultations and things and yeah but that's the way it goes and you had uh said that someone who uh rents your land for cropping uh, wasn't able to crop on part of the land that was seven hectares of your land that has been sort of um sectioned off had been sectioned off for this potential bypass when we found out the time period when they were looking at um actually earth moving and surveying and, and probably fencing that he, he left that those paddocks out of crop um, in preparation for that. But yeah, you've got to rest your land at some point anyway. So that, that was just the management tool. Yeah, sure, he could have cropped it and got some money off it that, that way, but we, he just ran sheep on it, yeah, rested it. So it's, it's not such a biggie. It, it might sound bad, but it's not, not insurmountable and it's not that bad, to be honest. You must be pleased, though, I guess, that you won't have to be running your sheep through any tunnels anytime soon. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah, that would be an experience. But also, having said that, if this goes through, if, if they plan it again, and it could be another, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years if the government can afford it at that time, um, and so it might not be me that's got to deal with it, and it could be my family or it could be anyone. And so, it's, yeah... Yeah, we'll just 
just that long. Your family have been uh, farming on this land for you know, almost a century, and you said your, your your grandkids really love using the the dams and the creeks, and they hadn't had that access recently, and that access might have been taken away. Yeah, you know, are you still sort of yeah wondering what might happen in the future for you know them being able to to play and and possibly farm on that land? Um, well, I haven't really had too much of a time to think about that, but they can now continue doing all that without having to worry about two hollows, one in front of us and one behind us. So, yeah, that's, that's a good opportunity for them to actually enjoy farm life and the recreation that goes around, canoeing on the dam and riding motorbikes in the creek and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, that would be good for them. You said that there'll be some uh, people in the district who'll be ecstatic about the news, like your wife, and there'll be some that might be a bit disappointed. Yeah, I, I expect that'll happen. I don't know what's going to happen with the proposed million dollars that the town was going to receive to beautify it or what they want to choose to do. I, I think that's probably fallen through too, but that's their decision, you know, because they had a lot of projects in their mind to, to do with this money and to attract more tourists into Truro. So that's probably off the cards. Leave the plans there, but that money's probably off the cards as well, off the table as well. Yeah, there'll, there'll be some people that will be unhappy about it, but that's also life. That's Truro farmer Kingsley Munchenberg there speaking with Eliza Berlage. As he said, there might be some mixed emotions in the Truro community about this news today. If you're someone with, well, either emotion, any, all of the emotions, let me know what they are. If you're a local, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or that text line again, 0467-922-891. Other South Australian projects that will not be funded by the federal government as a result of this review, well, on the list are the Handoff Township Improvement Access Upgrade, the Main South Road Productivity Package, Old Bel Air Road Upgrade at Mitcham, and the upgrade of the Onkaparinga Valley, Tears and Ned Road, Nan Road Intersection. Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast. Some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows. Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app. Hello, can we make it science week again? And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app. And of course, if you are listening in on the app today, there's a simple way to uh, text and call in straight from the app. So you don't have to remember all those numbers that I give out in a hurry. Uh, It is 21 minutes to one and you're with Selena Green today. A South Australian hay company has struck a deal worth $100 million to continue to supply oat and hay to China following the recent easing of trade conditions. Balaclava-based Balco Australia signed the deal with Chinese partner Bright Farming at the recent China International Import Expo. Over the next decade, Balco Australia will export around 200,000 tonnes of Australian oat and hay to Bright Farming to be used primarily in the dairy industry. The CEO of Balco Australia, Rob Lawson, is speaking here with Brooke Neindorf. Really, uh, the, the the arrangement is an extension of some business that we're already doing with them, but it was a show of, you know, a very good faith sign between both that we signed the 10-year agreement because prior to us losing access to China with hay, Bright were a very significant customer of ours who were taking around 20,000 tonnes a year, and so this agreement is 
that they would continue to take 20,000 tonnes a year for the next 10 years. But with the restoration of trade, um, that was something that they wanted to do and we were certainly very happy to, to be part of and, uh, you know, actually, to be honest, quite honoured to be part of. Was it something that you were worried that they might not uh, come back on board or, or stick with you? So we, uh, myself and, uh, you know, some, some of our team, our group sales manager, we were over in China in July and went to their National Dairy Expo and, like, access wasn't fully returned at that point. But we were really encouraged in July when we had a number of our previous, you know, large customers come and visit us, telling us they were looking forward to having Australian oat hay back into the market and would we be able to supply, you know, when, when the market was restored. And then for me, I was, you know, fortunate to go on the Premier's trip through China with, with uh, Premier Malinowskis with our board chair and... Um, Again, we had some positive feedback there and were, you know, constantly in contact with Detai and the Embassy. And, look, it was only within a week of being home from the Premier's trip that the market opened up. Do you think a trip like that helps to, to get that face-to-face contact and, and be over there? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think it was, I think, you know, perhaps the return was, was imminent, but, you know, having the, the goodwill and the gesture of seeing so many from the South Australian business community move, move through was definitely something that I believe possibly accelerated it. Of course, can't, can't be sure, but I, I believe it certainly um, did, did more help than harm, that's for sure. So. What sort of issues did Balco face with some of these trade impediments on hay imports to, to China over the, the last uh, sort of, you know, 18 months or so? Look, for us, I think, you know, China was a significant and is a significant part of our, of our business. So they probably occupied 25 to, um, to 30% of our total total business and so when we lost access you know it was a significant change for us and so we had to restructure we were able to you know find a couple of new markets in Vietnam and a little bit through into the Middle East but that it was it's a significant effect for us so that that being restored is equally a very positive thing for us now. What will they use this oat and hay product primarily for? Uh, Absolutely feeding dairy cows so is the is the is the primary function and you know the the fibre so they feed a lot of, you know, grains or, or loosened hay or alfalfa hay, um, which, you know, has a higher protein content. But our oat hay has fibre and it has a, d- a direct correlation with animal health as well. So we fit that important part in the feeding ration. You know, the dairy industry, you know, globally, I think, is probably stretched and pushed a bit at the moment. And so, you know, we're fortunate there's a need for the feed because, you know, obviously cows need to be fed. But it would also be fair to say that probably each... Each of the Asian, particularly our main Asian markets, the dairy industry is feeling feeling pressure right now, uh, and so people really want to get value for the feed that they're putting in, the money they're spending on the feed, and they want to get the value for that. And I think our Australian hay, with our clean and green, and certainly non non GM products, are making a difference in the markets. Did this decade long deal does that help with you know getting getting that product there as well? Like you've got that guarantee, and they've got that guarantee. Absolutely, absolutely. It was very much a, a win-win deal, you know, seen as a partnership with a long-term customer. And Rob Lawson, away from China, what are other markets like for, for Bauco? Is there other opportunities elsewhere like this one as well? So look, our significant markets are um, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, China, and, and then sort of developing markets in Vietnam and the Middle East. And look, just fractionally starting a little bit of business into Indonesia. And what has the hay season been like for, for Balco? So this season's been particularly good across all three states. So I think, uh, you know, we've had 
very little rain. Um, probably most of our most of our growers would have appreciated a bit more rain to finish their grain crops. But from a hay point of view, it's made for very good haymaking weather. And so, and we've been fortunate across all three states to have somewhere close to average yield. So, you know, we have a presence in Brookton in Western Australia, Bowman's in South Australia, which is right near Balaclava, and then Raywood, which is quite close to Bendigo in Victoria. Is there a particular state that will provide the most hay for China or do you sort of spread it out across the three? We do spread it out, but probably the majority might come out of South Australia into China, but there will be there will be some from each state. CEO of Bauco Australia, Rob Lawson. Minister for Trade and Investment, Nick Champion, says it's great to see such a positive outcome for Bauco in being able to once again send more hay to China. Our re-engagement with China and the stabilisation of the relationship, which is really important. I mean, China's our number one trading partner, so the Prime Minister's work and the Premier's uh, work on their respective uh, delegations to China has been really important. Um, obviously, we've got our national interests, China's got its national interests, but we want to see the trading relationship stabilise. And, and when it does stabilise, we see deals like this, $100 million worth of pay, uh, coming out of uh, you know the balaclava base to Balco, a great company, great uh, South Australian company, and exporting into China, uh, you know, some 200,000 tonnes of uh, Australian hay uh, over the next decade. And that's good news for Balco, but it's really good news for farmers as well. Does deals like this one open the door for, for other products as well moving forward? Well, of course, we want to see uh, you know, normalisation of our relationship in, in terms of wine. Uh, we want to see rock lobsters uh, back on you know, the, the, the dinner tables of, of Chinese uh, consumers. Uh, we want to see our barley uh, back in, in the beer that uh, Chinese brewers are making. So it can be a really profitable uh, relationship, but it, it also improves relationships with, between countries. If we trade with one another, um, it do, does help, you know, um, strengthen the bonds of peace and security and, sta- and stability in the world, and, and that's what we want to see. That is the Minister for Trade and Investment, Nick Champion, and he was speaking there with Brooke Nindorf. A couple of texts that have come in, one about, hey, this one just says, we're a country short on rich topsoil, so why would we export our hay overseas? Ask this listener. Uh, Mary is also on the text line talking about uh, cancellation of federal funding for a number of infrastructure projects announced today. Uh, Mary says the roads fiasco will cost Labor quite correctly at the next election. It is 14 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, right across the country, grape growers and winemakers pay mandatory levies to fund things like marketing, research and industry development. Now, under the law, the Wine Australia Act to be precise, one representative body is given the role of representing all of those producers, advocating on the wine industry's behalf to government on how those levy dollars are spent. Now, at the moment, that representative body is Australian Grape and Wine. But another body, which claims to represent more than 60% of the country's wine production, well, it wants an equal seat at the table. Australian Commercial Wine Producers Limited, so they've written to the Federal Ag Minister seeking formal recognition, arguing that Australian grape and wine no longer has a mandate for exclusive representation. I spoke earlier with the Australian Commercial Wine Producers CEO, Chris Byrne. We've written to the Minister seeking recognition for the contribution that we make to the mandatory levy system for the wine grape industry and to alert the Minister and others about the opportunities that we believe exist across the inland, that's 
three inland regions often regarded as the warm inland. Huge opportunities for us to contribute to one voice to government, which is what government want, uh, and that implies we can help with the unification of our entire industry. But to do that, we must be recognised for the levy contributions that we make. There is a a body uh, that is formally recognised within the Act as the representative body for wine and grape growers across the country. Are you looking to replace them as that representative body? Not at all, Selena. That is Australian Grape and Wine, and that's what's known as the declared body under the Act. When we set ourselves up three years ago to represent the inland producers, it was because the majority of them, the great majority of them, were not part of Australian Grape and Wine. So we've said, look, we'll work to unify that group, bring it together, and then to work with Australian Grape and Wine, the declared body, and Wine Australia, the RDC that's responsible for the spending and the distribution of our levies. And we are seeking input in collaboration with Australian Grape and Wine, not, not looking to replace them at all but to work closely with them. And indeed, that is our track record over the three years since we started. We have initiated lots of engagement with both Australian Grape and Wine and Wine Australia. I would say that we have a very good working relationship with both of those groups. But the reality is, as an industry, we're still looking at at the deepest crisis in a generation, and we believe that we can help accelerate strategies and advocate policies that will help to bring about solution to that crisis. Have you had difficulty or what is the difficulty of getting a, I guess, a formal seat at the table for Australian commercial wine producers without that, that recognition? It's a difficult one to sort of describe, but the reality is that, as I said, we've made, we think, you know, terrific contribution to building relationships with both the management of Australian Grape and Wine and Wine Australia. We think we've made great progress. But not being recognised means that we are not identified in any of the material that is is about promoting unity and togetherness, strategy and policy. And we're simply saying, look, as the majority uh, contributors, we must be recognised. It's just a matter of acknowledging Australian commercial wine producers exist. We are a legitimate entity that represents the interests of the commercial producers across the inland. The, The producers and the growers collectively contribute more than 60% is our estimate of the mandatory levies. So it seems only fair and only just to us that we should be adequately recognised. That's the CEO of Australian Commercial Wine Producers, Chris Byrne. I asked the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, which is the declared representative body, their CEO Lee McLean, what he made of that argument. As the national industry body, Australian Grape and Wine works really hard to represent uh, the entire industry. Uh, and we've been working really hard to make sure that we're taking the views of um, commercial wine producers, uh, premium wine producers and everyone in between uh, into account when we make uh, representations to government. So I'm based in Canberra. Uh, this is what we do uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we do genuinely try to make that effort to, to represent the entire industry. The thing that we are really focused on at the moment is not industry politics though we're really focused on issues relating to the reopening of the china market trying to address the oversupply situation dealing with things like alcohol uh, warning labels that have been proposed and floated in the media recently so that's what we want to make sure we're focusing on and representing the industry's best interests as best we can
Now, one of the arguments from uh, the commercial group is that they do contribute a significant portion of the the mandatory levy, industry levies. So they believe that they really do have a a mandate or that uh, Australian Grape and Wine no longer has a a moral authority to exclusively represent all producers. So is there room for them to have a seat at the table? What do you make of their argument? Well, from our perspective, the key thing for us is to make sure that we have a united um, single voice to government. Um, Division in the messages that we're bringing to government makes things difficult, uh, to be quite frank. So we, we're hoping that we can see a, a closer alignment with commercial producers and, and Australian grape and wine. Uh, and of course, we would love to see commercial producers being members of Australian grape and wine, and indeed many are. So with regards to the, the claims around membership, um, we've raised some question marks around that, but ultimately that application to be recognised as an industry representative body will sit with the Minister uh, and we will be working with the Minister's office to make sure they understand uh, how our industry association works at Australian Grape and Wine to explain some of the transparency that uh, we have in terms of our constitution and our governance arrangements and ultimately it will be a decision for the Minister to make. Is that there, though, some work for Australian Grape and Wine to work further with those commercial producers so that they do feel like they are having that that fair representation? Uh, Absolutely. So we have been making a genuine effort. So I've been in the the CEO's role at Australian Grape and Wine for 12 months uh, to the day. And I've visited regions like the Riverland, Mildura, Griffith, more than any other region in the country uh, over the last 12 months. We know that it's those regions that have been doing it really, really tough uh, in recent months and and years indeed. So we know that there's people hurting out there. Uh, We know that there is a great opportunity for us to talk to those businesses to make sure we're representing their needs and their interests, uh, and we're really well-placed to do that. So we have open arms to anyone who wants to be part of our organisation, and we will represent those views uh, to the very best of our abilities. That was the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, Lee McLean. I did reach out to the office of the Ag Minister, Murray Watt, on whose uh, desk this will land and whose decision it is uh, to see if his office wished to comment, but I've not had a response. Uh, Steve from McGill called uh, a little while ago. Steve is curious to know how Australia's reputation is going in America, whether it's changed from the lower bracket of table wine back to a premium bracket. Thank you, Steve. Maybe something for us to follow up on the track. Uh, it is six minutes to one because now we're going to talk about bees. Because this week is Australian Pollinator Week and we know how important bees and other pollinators are for the environment and for the success of our crops. Did you know there's a program for growers to improve pollination health on their property? It's called bee-friendly farming. And Eliza Berlage learnt more about it with Wean Bee Foundation Chief Executive Fiona Chambers at the Almond Centre of Excellence Orchards in Loxton. So we're in the middle of a native planting. All of the plants and trees you can see are indigenous to the the, the bioregion. So they're very locally specific. And they've been planted strategically so that there will be something flowering all year round. And this little planting here, um, it's a couple of thousand trees. It sits adjacent to a commercial almond orchard. And so what we're trying to do here is to build up the environment, both the habitat and the floral resources, so that it becomes a bee haven and a nesting haven and encourages all of those uh, beautiful native pollinators. So the benefit is they provide free pollination services and assists with pollination. Uh, So it's a really important role. 
And can any of these bees or insects help pollinate the almonds in the orchard? They they can. They will never replace the honeybee. The honeybee is the is the super pollinator for agricultural crops, but the, the they really. Uh, present a resilience factor so if we can increase that number and diversity of pollinators that are in the landscape all the time it means at times when maybe the orchardists can't access the number of honeybees that they need if they're a bit below the number they require um, then there's a buffer there with the native pollinators or if you do have full number of uh, honeybees available six hives per hectare then then what it means is that those they provide an additional pollination benefit, and if it's even if it's five percent benefit over the top, that's all profit. That's extra yield. What sort of things make an orchard bee friendly? <laughs> um, great question. So there's there's five things that that we qualify. Uh, we use as a basis for qualifying a farm as being bee-friendly. The first thing, they have to have a minimum of 3% of flowering resources. So 3% is base, is the minimum amount that you need to provide that beautiful biodiversity benefit. Of course, more is better. The second thing is to have something flowering all year round because there's no point having flowers for one month of the year and then all the native pollinators starve for the other 11 months of the year. So we have to have something flowering all year round. We need to provide water, and that's predominantly for the honeybees because they really need water, a water source to thermoregulate their hives. The fourth thing is to provide habitat, and that's for our native pollinators to breed and reproduce. So with 70%, um, you know, two-thirds of our native bees reproducing underground, we need to make sure we've got ground that's not ploughed up all the time so they can they can have that place to breed and reproduce, so providing habitat. And then the, the final thing is to commit to an integrated pest management program which is designed to really reduce or eliminate the harmful pesticides that will threaten our pollinators. How much have bee-friendly farming practices grown and and has that really grown in the last few years, few decades and and what's holding people back? Well the Bee Friendly Farming Program only came to Australia two and a half years ago and already the program has certified over 50,000 hectares across six states of Australia and 13 different industries. So it's not just almonds, we've got Bee Friendly Farming certified farms across cropping, grazing properties, beef, sheep, dairy, orchards, apple orchards, vineyards, it's really really broad. So really I think it's there's not much stopping people from expanding. We're seeing really rapid growth as producers see the benefit. What's not to love about encouraging more pollinators that give you free pollination benefit? I mean, it's it's a win-win. That's Wean Bee Foundation Chief Executive Fiona Chambers speaking there to Eliza Burlage. If you want to learn more about bee-friendly farming, we'll just pop that term, bee-friendly farming, into your search engine. Uh, It's almost time for me to send you to the one o'clock news. Uh, Caroline Winter will be bringing you afternoons today. She's looking at the possibility of public schools going to four days a week. Uh, She'll also take a fresh look at conventions around burial and cemeteries. Uh, A reminder, it's Producers Challenge Day, and she'll be chatting to the wonderfully named 90s band Exploding White Mice. That's all coming up with Caroline Winter on the afternoon's program today. Thank you so much for your company today. I've been Selena Green with The Country Hour and I'll be back again with more of it tomorrow. It's news time now. It's just going on one o'clock. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone. 
Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.